Why We All Need Philosophy, published September 7th, 2020. The great philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein was once sitting in a park having a philosophical discussion with a friend when his friend, quite animated, stood up and said loudly, that is a tree. I know for a fact that that is a tree. An awkward pause ensued as the two men quickly realized that passerby had stopped and were now staring at them. Wittgenstein, thinking quickly, turned to the people and said, Do not worry. This fellow is not insane. We are merely doing philosophy. When most people think of philosophy, they likely imagine indecipherable books that stretch on for a thousand pages, saying and solving nothing. They envision stuffy old men in misbuttoned shirts, untied shoelaces with mismatched socks, shuffling about hallways of some archaic university, mumbling to themselves, completely unaware of the humanity around them. As an undergraduate in university, when I told people that I was considering choosing philosophy as a major, they often looked at me with some mixture of horror and confusion, as though I had just told them I was considering shoving a stick of butter up my ass. One friend even went so far as to say, Dude, why would you do that to yourself? Philosophy has been a favorite punching bag for centuries. The criticisms are worn and weathered. Philosophy doesn't actually solve anything. Philosophers simply argue about arguing. Science tells us all that we need to know. Therefore, philosophy is no longer relevant. And so on. These criticisms are hardly new. And they haven't been limited to whinging college students or skeptical parents either. In fact, the critics have been many of the famous philosophers themselves. Albert Camus vehemently insisted that he was not a philosopher and would correct journalists if they ever referred to him as one. Schopenhauer considered most of the philosophers of his day, stalwarts such as Hegel, Fichte, and Schelling, to be navel-gazing hucksters and frauds. Karl Marx even went so far as to write, Quote, philosophy stands in the same relation to the study of the actual world as masturbation to sexual love. Ouch. But it was those intellectual titans of our age, Monty Python, who perhaps captured these criticisms best with their classic satirical bit, Philosophy Football. Hegel is arguing that reality is merely an a priori adjunct of non-naturalistic ethics. Kant, via the categorical imperative, is holding that ontologically it exists only in imagination, and Marx is claiming it was offside. All of this is to say that from the outset, I realize I'm marching into an uphill battle here. Philosophy isn't for the cool kids. Philosophy is seemingly lots of mental effort for little reward. Philosophy is not practical, nor does it solve any relevant questions anymore. We have science. We have big data and artificial intelligence. Who cares if we can ever actually know if a tree is a tree, right? Needless to say, I disagree with the haters. Philosophy is useful. It's also important. In fact, I will go as far as to argue that philosophy is likely more useful and important to the average person in the 21st century than almost any other time in human history. So buckle up. Shit's about to get real just as soon as we figure out what exactly real means. What is philosophy? Here's a funny little quirk about those criticisms of philosophy. In order to criticize philosophy, you must engage in philosophy. Philosophy is the inquiry into our understanding of reality, knowledge, and how we should live. 
When you string thoughts together into a coherent belief system, you are weaving together a philosophy. When you make value judgments to determine what is good and what is bad, you are relying upon a philosophy. When you are laughing at the ridiculousness of a book that has statements such as, quote, being is a being of a being, well, hate to break it to you, but you are engaging in philosophy. Philosophy is, therefore, undismissible in the simple reason that it encompasses all conscious experience. To criticize philosophy, you must rely on some degree of philosophy. To shit on a systematic framework of understanding, you must generate a systematic framework of understanding. This little conundrum is known as the performative contradiction. And where does it come from? That's right, motherfuckers. It comes from philosophy. Philosophy boils down the three major questions. One, what is true about existence? This is the question of metaphysics. Two, how can we know that it is true? This is the question of epistemology. And three, what actions should we take as a result of that knowledge? This is the question of ethics. I would say that's it, but all three of these questions have resulted in thousands of years of inquiry and debate with little consensus emerging on any of them. That may sound ridiculous, but that doesn't mean that huge progress has not been made in philosophy. Much has. Over millennia, epistemology has given us science, logic and reason, economics, psychology, and many of the theories of knowledge that underpin our political systems and societies today. Similarly, over the millennia, our understanding of ethics has progressed to the point where we no longer enslave vast portions of the population, systematically burn people alive for their beliefs, or watch people get eaten alive by angry lions in an arena for weekend entertainment. Today, concepts such as democracy and human rights are generally accepted the world over. In fact, the expanding circle of empathy has grown so much in recent centuries that we now not only concern ourselves with human welfare, but we see the treatment of animals and the environment as ethical issues as well. And in terms of metaphysics, well, in the past 400 years, we've gone from, I think, therefore I am, to maybe you're living in a giant computer simulation. So I guess that's progress. Why does philosophy matter? Philosophy matters because at some point in our lives, we must all ask and answer these questions for ourselves. What is true? Why do I believe it to be true? How should I live based on what I believe? A failure to answer one or more of these questions will quickly result in what we generally label as a mental or emotional crisis. We fall into depression, succumb to anxiety, struggle to find any sense of meaning or purpose. Philosophy, therefore, has an immediate and profound impact on our well-being and daily lives. A man knows he's a brilliant salesman. His entire identity is wrapped up in his ability to accomplish his job to do his work, to impress his colleagues. Then, one day, he gets fired. And not only is he shown what he believed to be true was wrong, but it now calls into question his actions and motivations for the past 20 years. He doesn't know what is true anymore. He doesn't trust himself to figure out what is true. He no longer knows what to do with himself. He's a mental and emotional wreck. These sorts of events happen to all of us. They may be triggered by the loss of a loved one, a dramatic health scare, or just straight up getting our ass kicked at work. But our mental structure for how we see and understand the world collapses, and we find ourselves lost, unable to determine what is true about ourselves, about our lives, or about the world. In fact, you may have heard of these sorts of experiences referred to as existential crises, as in 
Jane's husband fucked the mailman, and now she's having an existential crisis. It's a term that was originally borrowed from existential philosophers such as Soren Kierkegaard and Jean-Paul Sartre, and has since become a mainstay in psychology and psychiatry. The existentialist philosopher said that to regain our composure and our mental strength, we need to reconstruct a mental scaffold. We must redefine what we know to be true, how we know it to be true, and how it should dictate our actions. We must find new sources of meaning, more fundamental definitions of identity and purpose, more useful principles for relating to the world. In many ways, this sort of philosophical reinvention is what therapy is designed to help us do. Practices such as meditation or journaling can be useful as well. Using these tools, we can slowly reevaluate our values, shift our beliefs, take new actions, and create a better life for ourselves. That is, we can do philosophy. Philosophy teaches us the fundamental techniques for finding meaning and purpose in a world that is given no meaning, no cosmic purpose. Philosophy gives us tools to determine what is likely to be important and true, what is likely to be frivolous and made up. Philosophy shows us principles to help direct our actions, to determine our worth and values, to generate a magnetic field to direct our internal compass so that we will never feel lost again. Philosophy in the 21st century. If we all need to answer the three fundamental questions for ourselves to remain emotionally and mentally healthy, then I would argue that 21st century life has disrupted our ability to answer these questions unlike ever before. What do I know to be true? The flood of information has paradoxically not made us more certain of what is true and untrue, but more uncertain. Between fake news, bad science, social media rumors, and manipulative marketing and propaganda, it is harder to know if you can trust information you come across than any other time. How do I know that it's true? What's more, our traditional methods of ascertaining what we know about the world have come under fire. Science is facing a widespread replication crisis. Scandals of corruption are being unearthed in almost every major institution. Authorities are distrusted. And to throw even more gasoline on the fire, we are more aware of our own proclivities for irrational biases, prejudices, and false assumptions. Not only do we not know what's true, but we don't even know how to figure out what's true most of the time. How should I live based on what I believe? Without knowing what is true or how to go about finding truth, it is less clear than ever before how we should live. What is good? What is useful? What is important? We all think we know, but there's a general uncertainty that I think pervades most of our culture and generates a constant sense of anxiety and insecurity. Philosophy is more important than ever before because it has been deeply contemplating these questions for thousands of years. It has been aware of the traps and failings of the human mind, of the inconclusiveness of all knowledge, of the almost impossible task of deciphering moral good and then acting upon it. When it comes to these existential questions, there are more than a few giant shoulders on which we can stand upon. Below, I've written about three distinct ways philosophy can improve your life. It can help you better question what you know, it helps you choose how to live, and it helps you have an impact on the world. I'll go over each topic, and then at the end of the article, I will give some book recommendations, as well as pointers on how to start learning about philosophical ideas on your own. Philosophy helps you question what you know. The beautiful thing about philosophy is that it is a permanent state of questioning. 
There is no form of knowledge so assured that philosophy hasn't grabbed it by the neck and had its way with it a few times. Take, for example, René Descartes. In 1641, Descartes decided to tackle the first of the primary philosophical questions. What can I know for certain? Within about 10 pages of writing, Descartes quickly realized that there was almost nothing that you could come up with that you couldn't imagine a way that it wasn't true. The room you were sitting in, it could be a hallucination. Your memories could be invented or made up. The news you read or hear about, an elaborate lie. Descartes went so far as to posit what we know today as the matrix scenario, that we could be asleep in this entire life a dream. In fact, even our choices and decisions could be controlled by some evil manipulative force. Our self-control could merely be an illusion. He created a thought experiment of an evil demon who could be tricking you into believing that you are alive and free and enjoying this fine afternoon drinking a milkshake. Yet, none of it is real. Therefore, when it came down to it, Descartes realized that the only thing he could say with absolute certainty was that he existed. Maybe the room was fake, Maybe the world was a dream. Maybe his friends and family never existed. But by the given fact that he could even ask these questions in the first place, the fact that something was conscious and aware, he must exist in some form. He then wrote one of the most famous lines ever. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Descartes' deconstruction of knowledge cleaned the slate and made way for a burst of intellectual creativity in Europe which has since become known as the Enlightenment. Descartes believed that his insight would provide a fresh beginning for metaphysics, or the what-can-we-know-is-true question, and would lay the foundation for a new form of understanding, an understanding based on logic, reason, and evidence. And indeed it would. Descartes would be hugely influential on a new methodology of understanding that would later become known as natural philosophy, or what we today refer to as science. But the mind fuckery didn't end there. Roughly a hundred years after Descartes, the Scottish philosopher David Hume, at the tender age of 29, published a treatise on human nature, where he demolished the idea of cause and effect or the assumption that we can predict anything at all. Bear with me here, as this might sound insane. Hume said, logically speaking, that it is impossible to prove that anything will occur in the future no matter how often or how regularly it has occurred in the past. If the sun has risen in the east every day for a million years, that still doesn't prove it will rise again in the east tomorrow. It simply makes it insanely probable that it will rise in the east. Therefore, Hume said, one can never prove something's existence, but only determine what's highly probable to exist. We can never be certain something will happen, no matter how many times it's happened before. The best we can do is come to extremely probable approximations. Just as Descartes showed that we can never be certain that our perceptions are true, Hume showed that we can never be certain that our understanding of cause and effect is true either. This blew the minds of just about everyone who was paying attention at the time, which was probably like, you know, a few dozen wealthy white dudes. But still, as the 18th century proceeded, Hume's influence grew, and soon his arguments became impossible to ignore. Not much later, a young man in Prussia named Immanuel Kant read Hume's ideas and said it jolted him awake from a dogmatic slumber. It ignited a desire to pick up the mantle of understanding human knowledge and push further, to discover how we can know anything at all. Hume's writing inspired Kant to become a philosopher. Kant took Descartes and Hume's ideas and went even further. 
He said that there is a difference between our perception of something and the thing in itself. I can see the tree outside my office window. I am experiencing the light reflecting off the surface of the tree and interacting with my retinas to stimulate the nervous system in such a way that the appearance of a tree is generated in my mind. I can theoretically reach out and touch the tree. That is, I can experience the nerve impulses that trace up my arm from the atoms in my fingers coming close enough to the tree's atoms that the subatomic forces push them apart and signal to my nervous system that I am touching the tree. But I can never know the tree. I can never experience life as the tree experiences life. No matter how much sensory data I gather about the tree, I can never experience the tree. I can only experience the data. I am limited by my biological equipment to only interpret the tree with the means I have, sight, touch, sense, taste. Therefore, one could say that I do not know that there is a tree. All I can know is that there are cognitive reflections occurring in my mind of a tree. The tree's true existence, its fundamental treeness, is forever unavailable to me. Now, I know what you're saying. Yeah, Mark, but seriously, that is a tree. I, I know that that is a tree. And now who's the crazy man standing in the park? Okay, okay. So why the fuck am I bothering to go through all of this? This is just mental masturbation, right? What does this have to do with anything? These inquiries into human understanding raise many important points. But here are two. One, in the past century, psychologists have caught up to what these philosophers were saying, that we are limited and confined by our biological and neurological hardware. Any notion of objective truth will always be bent and twisted by the need to fit our limited sensory faculties. Our perceptions are flawed, our memories often imagined, our ability to reason often impaired. Much of what we believe to be true at face value is inaccurate at best and completely delusional at worst. This has real-world implications as we struggle to ascertain what is really going on around us, what is real and what is fiction, what is propaganda and what is legitimate inquiry. It is a call for us to be vigilant, critical, and humble in our own beliefs. As George Orwell said, quote, to see what is in front of one's nose requires constant struggle. Two, because human understanding is limited, we must be careful about what we choose to accept as true. Generally, philosophy has concluded that science is the best method for ascertaining and acting on knowledge, but it also admits that in most situations, solid scientific evidence is not going to be available or possible. Philosophy reminds us that many of our most closely cherished beliefs, beliefs about freedom, morality, and especially God, are not fundamentally provable by any sort of epistemological method. Everything, to a certain extent, must be taken with some degree of faith. Therefore, we need to be smart about what belief systems we buy into and which belief systems we ignore. All of this is a very roundabout way of saying that not only is it more accurate to remain uncertain on most issues and circumstances, but it is also more beneficial to you and the people around you. Unfounded certainty breeds tyrannical narcissistic behavior. Unfounded certainty alienates you from the perspectives and beliefs of others. Unfounded certainty prevents you from learning and growing from your failures. It's on this point that Buddhism was perhaps 2,000 years ahead of the West when it explicitly pushed a philosophy of not knowing and detachment from any tangible desire in the real world. Whatever you believed you know to be true, you don't. None of us do. We're all floundering around in a metaphysical abyss, 
and we must each construct some form of understanding out of nothing to keep us afloat. If it is impossible to definitively answer the question, what is true, then the next best question is, what is worth believing? Philosophy helps you choose how to live. Once you begin to question the significance and veracity of everything that happens to you in life, you will begin to realize that much of what you believe and value was not determined by you. It was determined by the people and culture around you. You didn't choose to value propriety. Your family did. You didn't decide you liked dogs. You just grew up with a dog. You didn't think about wanting to be a doctor. Your parents pressured you into it. At some point in our lives, we must all step back and question the values that we were raised with and ask ourselves if those values are serving us. In many cases, we grew up with good values, especially if we had parents who were present and functional and didn't vomit on our birthday cake. But every family has its dysfunction. Every culture has its obsessions. And inevitably, as adults, we start to uncover places where values and beliefs we grew up assuming to be true are not helping us but rather hurting us. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche called this questioning of what we grew up believing the reevaluation of values and said that if one has the mental and emotional courage to do it, they would become what he referred to as the Ubermensch or Superman. The Ubermensch, according to Nietzsche, was not limited by traditional or conventional beliefs of his or her time period. Even concepts as good and evil should be called into question, he said. Thus, the Ubermensch is not only willing to face social rejection or ridicule in many cases, but he welcomes it because it is merely further evidence of his willingness to define values for himself. Nietzsche believed that in the future, with the rapid acceleration of science and technology and the outsized social influence they wrought, only the Ubermensch would be able to remain thoughtful, independent, and mentally sound. Everyone else would be too easily corralled into this social movement or that religious doctrine. He argued that the Ubermensch would enter a realm beyond good and evil, a place where traditional morality was questioned and cast aside in favor of something deeper and more transformative. Nietzsche didn't live long enough to explain what that something deeper would look like, but his work did prophesize much of what has occurred in the past hundred years. He believed that with the waning influence of religion, people would be attracted to political and social movements with religious fervor. He believed that this zealotry would unleash wars and violence on a scale the world had never seen before. He wrote that much of the population, with their lives made so easy and comfortable by modern conveniences, would experience a pervading nihilism and listlessness. Nietzsche went insane in 1900, but it would take another 50 years for a group of French philosophers known as the existentialists to finally pick up where he left off. Whereas Nietzsche wrote of the coming age of nihilism, philosophers such as Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, and Jean Merleau-Ponty wrote from within the thick of it. All of them were victims and survivors of World War II, confronting the inherent meaninglessness of life head-on. Nietzsche wrote of the courage to choose one's own values in heroic and lofty terms. He saw it as a daunting task, only taken up by the chosen few. But the existentialist wrote of this task as an inherent responsibility for each individual. For Sartre, those who failed to consciously choose what they valued in their lives lived an inherently inauthentic life. Much of my work over the years has been in line with this, an attempt to help people reevaluate their values and to define what matters for themselves among a flood of useless information. 
This conscious choosing of one's beliefs and values not only has repercussions for one's own mental and emotional well-being, but it also determines the kind of footprint you leave in the world. In fact, as we'll see, the people who make the greatest footprints tend to have clearly defined philosophical belief systems for themselves. Philosophy helps you make an impact on the world. In 1949, Simone de Beauvoir published The Second Sex. The book starts out tame enough. The first 70 pages explain, in scientific detail, the biological differences between men and women. But upon arriving at part two, the book quickly takes a revolutionary turn. Beauvoir announces boldly that, quote, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. And the reevaluation of gender norms and social definitions of sex began. The second sex makes a simple observation. There are two definitions of woman, the biological definition and the social definition. The biological definition is solid and physical and mostly fixed, but the social definition is fluid. It evolves and changes shape based on time and location and culture. This social definition of womanhood is not a moral truth, but rather a reflection of economic and social realities of each society. Beauvoir then argues convincingly that the reality of most women's lives in the Western world did not live up to the values espoused by the Enlightenment. And because the definition of woman is flexible and can be molded, she aimed to recast the definition in a way that precipitated positive change. It's a dense philosophical work, numbering over 800 pages, with long, prodigious passages attacking the notion of womanhood from every angle imaginable. There are over 100 pages dedicated to Freud and the psychoanalytic definitions of femininity. Another 100 pages looking at the developmental effects of cultural pressures on girls beginning in early childhood. In an age where too much activism happens on Twitter with caps locks on, Beauvoir put together a towering intellectual work, cast in hard science and bolted together with airtight reason. The book was a scandal upon release. The Vatican quickly added it to its list of banned books. Women began to create networks to smuggle the book throughout Europe. Once translated to English, hundreds of pages were cut due to fear of public revolt. It took almost 10 years for any publisher in the United States to agree to publish it at all. But eventually, it was published. And while it didn't tear up the bestseller lists, it quietly infiltrated the culture via the vast networks of bored, college-educated housewives. Smart, ambitious young women who had gone to college, aced their studies, and then sat around their empty kitchens for the next 10 years. One of these housewives was a woman named Betty Frieden. After reading The Second Sex, Frieden attended her 15-year college reunion, where she couldn't help but notice all of her girlfriends from years before seemed to be suffering the same affliction as her. Lonely, bored, depressed. Frieden decided to write a book about the experience of the American housewife. She wrote about it in moral terms. She called the book The Feminine Mystique. In it, she argued the dehumanizing effects of the traditional gender roles of women's lives. She lambasted everything from the editors of women's magazines being male to the loss of agency due to women being expected to give up their careers to raise children to the stultifying boredom of repetitive housework. Frieden took the heady and abstract arguments of Beauvoir's reevaluation of gendered values and crystallized them into the daily life of the American woman. The result set off a firestorm. The modern feminist movement in the U.S. was born. Adopting a more personal philosophy. 
In my opinion, Beauvoir will one day be considered the most influential thinker of the 20th century. Regardless of how you feel about the state of feminist activism, the second sex perfectly illustrates the outsized influence philosophical thoughts can have on the world. This is why nothing appears to ever get solved with philosophy. Its ideas move so slow over such a staggering amount of time that it's only possible to properly gauge their influence hundreds of years after the fact. We could trace similar genealogies of socialist and communist thought back to Marx, political philosophy of liberalism and democracy and human rights back to John Locke, capitalism and free commerce back to Adam Smith, or the classification of the sciences all the way back to Aristotle. Because philosophy deals with concepts that are so abstract and universal, the effort that goes into redefining our definitions of ideas such as justice, equality, freedom, and gender require not only monumental intellectual effort to redefine, but it takes generations for the ideas to properly disseminate across populations and be translated down into day-to-day application. For every Beauvoir, there need to be a dozen Friedens, and for every Frieden, you need thousands of activists and adherents to make any tangible change. But I believe that if you look at all of the people with the greatest impact on the planet right now, they are all driven by some form of personal philosophy. They too have been forced to go through the work of reevaluating all values and defining good and evil for themselves. They have taken on the responsibility for choosing their own meaning and then giving it to the world. For example, much of the ethos of Silicon Valley, move fast and break things, is built off the philosophy that is part techno-utopian, derived from science fiction, and part libertarian, faith that market-driven innovations produce better outcomes for all. Mark Zuckerberg, perhaps the most visible of all Silicon Valley tycoons, built his credibility by espousing a personal philosophy of, quote, connecting the world, and, quote, bringing humanity closer together. Note, this was back in the mid-2000s, before we all discovered how fucking awful people were. It sounded like a great idea at the time. Another example, Alan Greenspan has quietly been one of the most influential figures in the world over the past 50 years. Greenspan, who in his younger years was a close friend and follower of Ayn Rand, became the chairman of the Federal Reserve in 1987 and presided over one of the biggest economic booms in history. During this period, he adopted a more activist approach to managing the economy via via interest rates and debt. His policies remain influential and controversial, even to this day. Critics have argued that everything from the 2008 collapse to the growing inequality across the, the developed world can be attributed to his banking practices. Another example, Xi Jinping has reshaped the political economy of China, making it more aggressive and less democratic. Xi has done this by going against his predecessors, reviving millennia of Chinese thought. He has then combined these traditional ideas with Maoism to justify clamping down on dissent, committing atrocities, and becoming more antagonistic towards the rest of the world. Another, most recently, a set of ideas loosely identified as critical race theory with the help of famous authors such as Ibram X. Kendi and activist reporters at the New York Times have become prevalent in schools, universities, activist communities, and news media in the United States. CRT teaches that not only is racism prevalent, it's ubiquitous. Everyone and everything is either racist or anti-racist, and squashing racism should take precedence over all other concerns. The examples are endless. 
Philosophies emerge from the abstract clouds of ideas and gradually trickle down to ground-level activists and politicians, who over the course of generations materialize these ideas into the world. Once made real, these philosophical principles are then put into action and reshape lives. And unless you are aware of them, unless you are aware of the intellectual forces molding and dictating the discourse underpinning your day-to-day life, you are helpless but to be influenced by them. Where to start? Okay, so hopefully your nipples are all hard from philosophy now. Good, let's talk books. If you are a complete newbie to philosophy and are intimidated by the length and density of most philosophical works, that's fine. We can break you in slowly. I've included a list of entry point books below that discuss major philosophical ideas of the Western canon, so you can have a little familiarity before diving in yourself. There are also philosophical novels and memoirs. Many philosophers prefer this format rather than the classic essay. They are certainly easier to read, but sometimes their arguments and points aren't as clear. Finally, I included both easier philosophy books and more difficult and serious books. Obviously, none of these lists are exhaustive. They are mostly biased by my own taste and stuff that I have read and enjoyed. If you'd like more recommendations, you can check out the book recommendations of the website. I'd highly advise using study aids while you're reading as well, especially for the harder and more dense books. I highly, highly recommend the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It's an incredible resource for summaries of major works and simpler explanations of difficult concepts. It's also free. Also, surprisingly, most Wikipedia entries for major philosophers and their works are often very good. Don't be afraid to hop on and read a summary of a section of a book you just finished if you aren't confident you understood it all. Okay, happy reading and happy mindfuckery. Entry points to philosophical ideas. Sophie's World by Jostein Gardner. A Guide to the Good Life, an Ancient Art of Stoic Joy by William Irvin. The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt. The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Everything is Fucked, a book about hope by Mark Manson. Philosophical novels and memoirs. The Stranger and the Plague by Albert Camus. Nausea by Jean-Paul Sartre. Crime and Punishment and Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Candide by Voltaire. Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Easier philosophy books. The Republic by Plato, Meditations on First Philosophy by Rene Descartes, Ethics by Spinoza, Letters from a Stoic by Seneca, Nature and Other Essays by Emerson, Beyond Good and Evil by Friedrich Nietzsche, Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard, Serious Philosophy, A Treatise on Human Nature by David Hume, The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant, Phenomenology of Spirit by Hegel, The World as Will and Representation, by Schopenhauer, Being and Nothingness, by Jean-Paul Sartre, Reasons and Persons, by Derek Parfit.